0: Good morning, my name is Jesse Robinson, I'm a pastor here at Trinity, and I add my welcome to that of Mike and Celeste. If you are new here, we are so glad you're here. I would love to meet you out in the foyer uh, after the service. We've been in a sermon series about the wilderness this season of Lent, and that's fitting because Lent is based on the 40 days that Jesus Christ was in the wilderness being tempted. Lent is a kind of wilderness. And we've, ex- we've been exploring the ways that wilderness can be these seasons in our life. We all have seasons of wilderness a cancer diagnosis, maybe a season in parenthood or a job loss or transition. It's quite apparent to me that our beloved church is in a season of wilderness. There's uncertainty. Hardship, doubts, temptations, and it seems our local wilderness only reflects that of the larger wilderness of our country and our world. In the last two years, but make no mistake that our whole world is a wilderness. Like our life is a wilderness. Sure, we like to think that the wilderness is an exception, but the reality is is that it's just the inverse just like the israelites our time is punctuated by respites by oases but the context the backdrop is always wilderness that's what this life is about that's why peter calls us in his epistle of sojourners and exiles we are in a wilderness the choice is not wilderness or not the choice is are you a pilgrim going somewhere or not but here is the hope friends Here is the beauty, even the glory of the wilderness. And it's not the wilderness itself. We should not romanticize the wilderness. Nature is terrifying. But the glory of the wilderness is that God is there. And not only is God there in the wilderness, He actually reveals Himself in the wilderness in this exquisite, incredible way. That's our Sermon thesis today is that in the wilderness, God reveals his glory. Let's say that again. In the wilderness, God reveals his glory. We're going to look at glory in three ways the glory that we long for, the glory we fall short of, and the glory that we're saved by. A glory we long for, a glory we fall short of, and a glory we are saved by. Would you pray with me as we enter into this? Father, we thank you for your glory. And Lord, we pray. We pray as your body, the same prayer that Moses prayed. Please show us your glory. In Christ's holy name, amen. So first, the glory we long for. This is the final episode of the Golden Calf series. The people made a golden calf, and they worshiped the Lord through it just, not even a month after they told god that they would never do that and it's this big mess and god this god threatens to destroy them in his right that's what they deserve what so we discussed last week but he also god invites moses to intervene and that's exactly what moses does moses intervenes and he offers his life to atone for the people but god actually rejects the offer and we didn't read this but in chapter 33, before our text began, a compromise is reached. God essentially says, I'm still going to give you the promised land. The land that I promised to Abraham, the whole reason I delivered you into Egypt, but I will not be going with you. He says in Exodus 33, 3, go out to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. In other words, what God is saying is that intimacy with me is too dangerous. You are too sinful, too unholy for me. And so you can go up into the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you because I would destroy you. It's, It's an extraordinary offer. God says, I'm going to give you prosperity and the sweetness of life this land of flowing with milk and honey, and you won't have to deal with me? You won't have to deal with God? Like, how many of us would take that deal? Like, I, I can get the dream family, that my, my dream job, my dream life, my house, and I don't have to worry about God? Isn't that what we truly want in the wilderness? Like, I just want to get out of this desert, this wilderness, the barrenness, the futility, the difficulty. I just want to get out of here. I don't really care if God is there or not. I just want out. I want ease or comfort or peace or control or joy, success. You see, the wilderness reveals what our true ends and means are. What are we really living our life for? Maybe we're... What we really want is comfort, and so we are going to use God to get that comfort, which is just a way of showing us who our true God is. The idols that we ask God to bless and cherish more than Him. Lord, will you please just give me a spouse? Lord, will you please just give me this job? We ask God to bless our idols all the time, but Moses won't have it. Moses says, I don't want to go to the promised land without you. I don't want to go, God. And he spent a good portion of chapter 33 pushing for God to come with him. Because Moses knows that we are made for God. He wants no part of going to the promised land without him. In fact, if they get to the promised land, they can have all the milk and honey. All the success. But if God is not there, that is not a promised land. That's hell. So Moses is pushing God. He's saying, I want you to come with us. I want your glory. Friends, we are made for glory. The glory of God. Our most memorable moments are the most glorious moments. The groom's face. As he beholds his bride for the first time as she walks down the aisle. Or the miracle of holding a newborn just hours after birth, standing on the cliff overlooking a valley, or being carried away by a piece of music. Each carries with it this glory that we long for, these moments of transcendence. And each one of those carries with it a glory that hints of a more glorious glory, if I could say that. A more glorious glory, something more weighty, less transient, C.S. Lewis, in the book Reflections on the Psalms, he writes about our natural inclination to glory. Listen to what he says. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or the giving of honor. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed either That just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. And if it were possible for a created soul fully to appreciate, that is to love and delight in, the worthiest object of all, and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme happiness. The Scotch Catechism says that man's cheap end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify what C.S. Lewis is saying is that we are made for this glory. We're made to praise glory. And Moses knows this. And so he is absolutely defiant that God would go with them. And in the middle of this intercession, Moses asks himself to see God in his glory. Look at verse 18. This incredible request. Moses says, please show me your glory. You now, glory is one of those churchy words, isn't it? In the Hebrew, glory is the word kavod, a word that means weight or heaviness. The weight or heaviness of God, the substance of God, who he is in and of himself. The colonial theologian Jonathan Edwards would use synonyms like excellency or beauty or greatness for God's glory. So what Moses is asking, he's saying, I want to see you, Lord, in your substance, in your beauty, in your glory. That's what Moses is asking for. But God responds in two ways. God's going to define his glory, which is absolutely his prerogative. First, he defines his glory by his goodness. Look at verse 19. God answers his request to see his glory. And he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. In other words, he equates his glory with his goodness. What are our first doubts about the Lord? Aren't they that he isn't good? Aren't we constantly anxious that maybe God doesn't have what is best in mind for us? But God says, no. You want to see me? You want to see my glory? It is my goodness. In fact, I am the very definition of goodness. There is no good apart from me says David in Psalm sixteen two, If you want to see the Lord's glory, look at his goodness. But then God also equates his glory with his sovereign freedom. Look at the last part of verse 19. He says, And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now I know that some of us in here are not real fans of predestination or calvinism but paul will quote this exact verse in defense of god's elective purposes in romans chapter 9 he quotes this exact verse i'll be gracious to whom i'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom i'll show mercy and what paul says he says god does all of this it's because of god's mercy that we can do nothing We can do nothing to merit our own salvation. That our very salvation is dependent upon God and God alone. Why? So that God alone gets the glory. So that God alone gets the glory. So that none of us can say, look how good I am. Instead, so that God can say, do you see how good I am? God's sovereign freedom is his glory, which is a mercy to us. We should rejoice in this. You know why? Because none of us can do anything to merit our salvation. That leads us to our second point, the glory we fall short of. The glory we fall short of. I just want to remind you of our context. Moses' request to see God's glory comes on the heels of this idolatry. And Psalm 106 comments on this golden calf. Listen to how Psalm 106 describes it. It says, They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. That's a profound statement, profound commentary on what we do in our idolatry. We take God's glory and we exchange it. This beautiful, transcendent, ineffable thing. And and we say, you know, I don't really want that. I'm going to take a cow. It's comical. (laughs) It's supposed to be comical. We exchange the glory of God. Blaise Pascal, this brilliant 17th century mathematician, he describes our nature as this. Listen to this. He, God, only is our true good. And since we have forsaken him, it is a strange thing that there is nothing in nature which has not been serviceable in taking his place. The stars, the heavens, earth, the elements, plants, cabbages, leeks, animals, insects, calves, serpents, fever, pestilence, war, famine, vices, adultery, incest. And since man has lost the true good, everything can appear equally good to him, even his own destruction. I don't know how many of you are valuing leeks over God or cabbages. I hope you don't. But you get the point. We've exchanged the glory of God for something else. In our 21st century, we could... I had a whole other list, right? Success, promotions, money, comfort, sex. But another way that scriptures speak of the way that we deal with God's glory, we not only exchange God's glory, we also fall short of it. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We sometimes speak of sin as brokenness or dysfunction. But I wonder if that confuses the effect of sin with the essence of sin. You see, sin at its essence is technically a breaking of God's law. But here in Romans 3.23, Paul actually equates sin with falling short of God's glory. What's wrong with sin, the exceeding sinfulness of sin, is that it fails to reflect the glory of God. That we are meant to be kind of mirrors You can imagine God as a sort of son. And we're meant to reflect back to God who he is. What's wrong about sin is that we fail to reflect the glory of who he truly is. And his unsurpassed beauty, his resplendence. And that's why Moses' request to see God's glory is so fraught. Look at verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. The Lord's glory is this all-consuming fire that devours whatever does not reflect its purity. So what Moses is asking for will kill him. Moses is asking to look through a telescope at the sun. It will destroy him. And that is the bind that we find ourselves in we're caught in this existential bind that we are made for god's glory and yet we fall short of it that it will destroy us not because of any deficiency in itself but because of our own deficiency but remember how did god first speak of his glory he said i will be gracious to whom i'll be gracious and i will be merciful on whom I will show mercy. Indeed, the Lord goes to extraordinary lengths to accommodate Moses' request. God wants Moses to see His glory, and so in verses twenty-one through twenty-three, God does this very elaborate thing just so that Moses can see some part of Him. He says, "I know a rock. I'm going to put you there. I'm going to put my hand over you. I'll pass by you, and then as I'm walking away, you can see my back." And see my back. Why? Why does God do that? Because God is a God of gracious mercy. And that leads us to our last point. The glory we are saved by. When Moses asked, please show me your glory. God says, I will show you my goodness. I'll make all my goodness pass before you. But then he said something else. And will proclaim my name. In other words, God is saying, you want to know my glory? It's summarized in my name. It's who I am. In fact, the story proceeds in a counterintuitive fashion. Look at verse five. "The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, "The Lord, the Lord." And then it goes on. The scripture actually never says that Moses saw the glory. Instead, the emphasis is on the hearing of God's name. Names in Scripture often communicate the essence of a person. And so what, what, God, what the Scripture is saying is, do you want to see God's glory? Hear his name. It's an equating of the name of God with the glory of God. Now, if you're an underliner, I want you to take out a pen and I want you to underline verse 6 and 7 because that whole thing is the name of God. Do you see it? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, the who will by no means clear the guilty. That whole thing, that's the name of God. The whole thing. And it's exquisite. Let's go in to each part of those each part of the name first. How does God begin his name? Gracious, merciful, and gracious. Now, if, you, if I asked you, who is God? What, what attribute do you think of first? of so you might say all-powerful, all-good. Would you say merciful? Because that's how God starts. He says you want to know who I am I'm merciful that is I'm a God whose essence it is to show mercy to withhold punishment I am not just waiting for the hammer to drop on you I love to show mercy and that mercy is followed up by this grace he loves to show favor on people who do not deserve it that is who our God is that is his very name He is slow to anger. Oh, friends, how many of us are slow to anger? How many of us parents are slow to anger? But our God is. He is slow to anger. He does not discipline quickly. He does not lose his temper. He is patient and gentle. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you hear that abounding? Like God is filled to the brim. If you shake God just a little bit, like what comes out is steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who our God is. You prick him and if, if he could bleed, you would prick him. And what comes out is love and faithfulness. That is who our God is. He will never leave you or forsake you. Friends, we as people, we are frail. We are unfaithful. We will betray each other and leave. But God, that is not the kind of God who is. His very name is that he is abundant, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he is forgiving of iniquity and transgression and sin. Forgiveness is a part of God's name. He loves to forgive our sins. Friends, we are so reluctant to come and confess our sins to the Lord. It's not another time. I looked at it again, or I took another drink, or I yelled again. But the Lord delights. It is in His very nature and essence that He loves to forgive us when we come to Him in our sins. And finally, this last part, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord is perfectly just, which is a balm for any of us who've suffered wickedness at the hands of others. You see, God is not some softy who's just full of love. He is. But He's also a just God. And He will not allow for any injustice to linger. That is who our God is. Do you see how many beautiful attributes are part of His name? That is His name. Friends, this is His name. Do you want to know who God is? He is a Lord who is merciful and gracious. And this, these verses, Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, these become Israel's credo. It's, it's confession. It shows up time and time again in the Scriptures, in the Psalms, Ever, in the prophets. Joel says, come back to God. Even Jonah, Jonah declares this as the name, saying that God is not only this to the Jews, he's this to the Gentiles. This is who our God is. It is his name. Now, our story ends with Moses bowing his head to the earth. The heaviness of the glory, the glory of this name is too much for him to bear. And he bows his head and worships. But then he makes one last plea to the Lord. Remember, Moses is determined that God go with him. And so he begs God. He says in verse 9, If I now have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. In other words, what he's saying is, you know, God, you know how deceitful we are, how stiff-necked, how stubborn and sinful we are. But Lord, would you please, you just declared your name to us as merciful and gracious. Would you have mercy on us? Would it be your glory, your glory to have mercy on us and go with us? And God does. God goes with them. And this declaration of who God is, this will follow Israel throughout the scriptures. This is the banner that they wave every time, whatever wilderness they are in. Friends, you could do if you could memorize who your Lord is, memorize this. This is who he is and his essence. Now, now, I want to pause here because I don't want you to miss this. Remember our context? Remember that we're in the wilderness. Remember all those weeks ago when we began this journey? It says when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. He led them by the way of the wilderness. And Israel has been out in this wilderness, the place where they would struggle to find water, the place where they would... Fear, hunger, and famine. That's the wilderness they're in. And then in that wilderness, Israel would commit this single apostasy. The forging of the golden calf. She betrayed the Lord that saved her. And it's in the context of that, on the heels of that great apostasy, that God most fully reveals Himself. Do you hear that? In the midst of Israel's most dark sin, that's where God says, You know who I am? I am a Lord gracious and merciful. Do you see that? That in the midst of the wilderness, that is where we see the essence of God most clearly. In a way, that's the whole point of the wilderness. To bring us to the end of ourselves that we might finally see God for who he truly is in all his glory. That we might finally dispose of all our idols, our false theologies, the lies we've invented about God. And it's in the wilderness where we have an opportunity to take God on his own terms. He's the only one that we need who gives himself in his name. And it's that same name that Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem in. We read the scripture about Palm Sunday. And what did, what did the crowd say about Jesus? They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Who comes in the name of the Lord. This name. This is the name that Jesus came in. You see, he is the one who is the incarnation of God's glory. That's how John's gospel begins. So let's pray this. John's gospel begins, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it is exactly in Jesus' cross the greatest apostasy of our humanity where we see God most clearly. It's in the wilderness of the cross where we see the glory of God. That it is God who is merciful and gracious. That he is offering us forgiveness. Those of us, all of us, who fall short of the glory of God on the cross of Christ, Jesus pays pays the penalty that god's justice and his grace might be absolutely and perfectly integrated do you see the cross as the perfect expression of god's glory in the wilderness this is what our story has been leading up to that we might see god for who he is and it is most clearly depicted on jesus and the cross as he says my god my god why have you forsaken me and he dies That's what we're leading up to this week in the Holy Week. We're beginning this journey. We're aiming for the cross, which is simultaneously the glory of the Lord. I want to end with one thought. Have you ever prayed like Moses? Have you ever prayed like Moses? What did Moses pray? Please show me your glory. Have you prayed for that? Like, what, what are you praying for? What are you longing for? I, I know that many of us just pray to kind of get, get by, pray for our maladies, pray for others, and that is good and right. But do you see the boldness of Moses here? He says, please show me your glory. Friends, that is what we are made for. Could we as a church come together and pray that together in the midst of this season of wilderness? Could we be so fixed on jesus that all we want is to see his glory this is the vision we are made for to behold the lord in all his splendor and majesty and excellence and the apostles were captivated by this vision they were captivated that one day they would see jesus in all his glory and that that would make everything worth it you see heaven heaven is worth it Heaven is not great because of heaven. Heaven is great because of the glory of Jesus that is there. Amen? I heard some amens. We'll make doubt of you yet. Paul in 2 Corinthians declares that we can even be bolder than Moses. And the glory of Christ far surpasses anything Moses encountered. Paul declares that our spiritual formation, our sanctification, our transformation depends on beholding the glory of Christ. Listen to this. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, all we have to do is just look at Jesus. And in the very act of looking to Jesus, we are actually being transformed one degree of glory to another. In the act of looking at Jesus that he's actually transforming us. So we're becoming beautiful. We're becoming glorious. We're becoming what we truly were meant to be. That's what this life is about, is looking at Jesus. And the Apostle John, he has his own take on this. In chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Isn't that beautiful? We shall see him as he is. That's the point of the Christian life, is to see Jesus how he is. And then John says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Even the long to see Jesus is an act that actually purifies you. Even if you end up want to see Jesus. We are actually being purified for that final vision of Christ. Friends, that is what the wilderness does. The wilderness shows us Jesus, and we will have him. So friends, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and the all-glorious one. You pray with me. Oh, Father, please show us your glory. For those of us who are not hungry for it, we ask you would prick our hearts. We ask that you would lead us to the end of ourselves, that we would encounter real suffering until we finally relent, and we would seize you and see you, O Lord, the one and the only, the glorious one, in Christ's name, amen.